first Hassan crossing the next field. Now we have multiple sightings of up to five lights with a similar shape and all, but they seem to be steady now rather than a pulsating or glow with a red flash. We just crossed the, the creek and uh, we're getting what kind of readings? No, getting through three good clicks on the meter and we're seeing strange lights in the sky. Uh, 244, we're at the far side of the farmer's, the second farmer's field and made sighting again about 110 degrees. This looks like it's clear off to the coast. It's right on the horizon. Moves about a bit and flashes from time to time. Still steady or red in color. Also, after negative readings in the cellular field, we're picking up the slight readings, uh, four or five clicks now on the meter. 305, at about uh, 10 degrees horizon, uh, directly north, we've got two strange objects, uh, half moon shape, dancing about with colored lights on them. But uh, gets to be about five to 10 miles out, maybe less. The half moons have now turned into full circles. As though there was an eclipse or something there for a minute or two. Zero three fifteen. Now we've got an object about ten degrees directly south, ten degrees off the horizon. And the ones in the north are moving. One's moving away from us. Moving out fast. This one on the right side away too. Yeah, we're both heading north. Okay, here, here he comes from the south. He's coming toward us now. Now we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground. and the objects are still in the sky, although the one to the side looks like it's losing a little bit of altitude. We're turning around and heading back toward the base. Welcome back to the Infinite Rabbit Hole. I am your host tonight. My name is Jeremy, and today I am with my co-hosts, Jake and Jeff. Jake, start with you, man. How are you doing today? Doing well. I'm excited for the topic. I'm excited for our guests, and I really can't wait to kick this thing off. So let's do this. This is a good one, man. I've been working on this for quite a while. Jeff, how are you doing, dude? I'm doing pretty good, bud. Can't complain. Another day in paradise. How about you? I'm excited about this topic. I've been sitting on this for quite a while. I've been thinking about doing it since the latter half of season one. Uh, and I finally got around to a chance to actually be able to put some time and effort into this and you know just warning everybody now listening to this this is probably going to be a two-parter so if you see that little one it says Rendlesham forest ufo incident part one just know part two will be out next week we do have a guest tonight and making let's see hold on before i sound stupid no okay the first time that a non-author <laughs> has made a repeat appearance on the infinite rabbit hole and did not become a, a host. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to welcome declassified Dave from the hush hush society conspiracy hour back to the infinite rabbit hole. Dave, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, man. It's been a minute, dude. Yeah. It's been about a year since I've been on the show. Yeah, man, it was just, uh, I think it was just me, you, and CJ. I can't remember if Wes was on the episode, but that was the Black Eyed Children, right? That's what we did? Yeah. Yeah. We haven't worked together in quite a while, because before that, I came on to your show, and we did The Jersey Devil. And then before that, I had Mike on in season one, and Jake was with CJ, Andrew, and myself when we had Frank on. Mm-hmm. to do yellowstone 
And now we're just going to start the cycle again where yeah. at, at the end, <laughs> after we have Frank and, and Mike on for the second time, we're going to make that stupid joke about ending the podcast again. <laughs> it all starts somewhere and it's going to start here tonight. But I just want to say thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Before we get into the subject of tonight, I just want to say thank you to anybody that has purchased from our merch shop from our website, infiniterabbithole.com. The support has been fantastic. Just want to say thank you very much. We're seeing a lot more support with the shop than we did with the Patreon for it. You guys are enjoying the stuff. I've got a lot of reviews in about the product. The product is good. Actually, when I was searching for the, the right place to go, I actually was talking to Dave a couple times. Uh, he actually turned us on to not only the place that provides the clothing, but also the place that hosts the store uh, because they also have a store. They, they do the same thing, same products, uh, but of course they do their own design. So uh, Dave, thanks for helping me out with that, man. I appreciate it because it stuff comes out good. Yeah, it does. We're actually, uh, I think we're using the same printing company soon. Our store is currently down. It's going to come back up pretty, probably within the, well, within the week of us recording this uh uh probably by the end of november um and we're going to have some new stuff uh some of it tasteful some of it not so tasteful uh <laughs> and and uh we're going to be hosting our stuff through etsy instead of uh big cartel Ooh. And, yeah so it's going to be a little bit different but the product is still going to be the same stuff that we were doing before still going to be able to get that mothman thrasher shirt yeah, yeah, there's going to be some OG stuff that's going to stick around. Good, because I need to get that in a, in a size up, because I'm, I'm getting fat, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's an awesome shirt and an awesome design. I love that it one. It is. Dude, if you, uh, Jake, Jeff, you guys get a chance to check that shirt out. Super cool. I saw that that shirt when you posted that, but I couldn't remember from what show that was from, because we're like bouncing around between so many different shows and stuff, and it's just like, it's like, geez. So I figured eventually I would I would have to ask, and I completely forgot. So I'm glad you brought it up. I'm actually writing it down on my notepad right here. <laughs> super, super awesome shirt. I just yeah. got to get it get a bigger size because I'm a <sighs> chubby boy. Yeah. yeah, I'm getting fat, man. <laughs> <laughs> getting there, real bad. But yeah, Jeff actually does the same from his show too. He doesn't use Big Cartel, but he uses the uh, use Printful, right? Jeff? Yes, sir. Actually, my shirt. I just ordered a shirt from Jeff's store. That should be here uh, tomorrow, I think. I think I got a shipping notification. Appreciate that. But um, I just want to say for all the travelers that are listening to the Infinite Rabbit Hole, thank you. Thank you very much. I really do appreciate the support that you guys are showing for the store. Head on over to InfiniteRabbitHole.com. Click on the, the Infinite Rabbit Hole merch tab. Check out the store. If not, just check out the website. A lot of work goes into that. And we're very proud of it. Dave, uh, what's going on over at the Hush Hush Society, man? Anything new since the last time? I mean, it's been a year, so I'm, of course there's new shit, right? Lots of new stuff. We're not in uh, season one or two anymore. We're in uh, <laughs> season four, getting into <laughs> season five. Uh, That's true. We are uh, currently in the process of uh, doing a double 9-11 episode. We've pushed that back about 15 months. Uh, mm. Just wasn't the time, wasn't the place. And it was supposed to be one. It's a two-parter. It's going to come out end of November, beginning of December. I think the November 29th and December 13th. 
So, nice. Yeah. So have you guys announced your season finale? I know you guys do a live show every season finale. Have you announced the topic yet? They will be announced. Uh, they are actually, well, we're going to be doing it live on Facebook again. It's going to be Monday, January 10th, 2022. Can't believe that. Uh, and it's the 40th, sh- 40th debriefing we've done. So that's that's pretty big for us. And uh, we're going to be doing Agenda 21 and then Skull and Bones mm, and a bunch right. of other stuff going Skull on there. Bones. Right Family guy makes fun of the Skull and Bones. <laughs> yeah, we actually <laughs> mentioned that when we were talking about it. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, Dave, but uh, I actually was the winner on one of your guys' uh, trivia live streams like a few months back. Did you get your stuff? No, I told you to keep it because I don't want it. You know? Ooh. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm like a little hype man for the Hush Hush Society every time they go live. <laughs> I can't, yeah, he's, I can't he's, on every, he's on every show. <laughs> I, get, I get a bunch of people, man. I remember uh, for your season two live show, I'm at work and everybody, I'm listening to it on my phone. Everybody's like, what are you doing? I'm like, you guys want to win free shit? <laughs> jump, <laughs> jump in. Listen. <laughs> like so everyone goes back to their shops and they're putting in i think my uh my buddy uh i can't can't remember his first name i'm not gonna say his last name but one of my buddies won a shirt and he was pretty stoked about that nice that's awesome. but uh yeah so january 10th you said right january 10th is the live season four finale cool so travelers check out the hush hush society you guys know we work with them quite a bit uh if you're familiar with our show i'm pretty sure you're familiar with their show too if you're not give it a chance head on over there great group of guys over there we've had everybody a great goop a great (laughs) group of guys over there we've had every one of their hosts on the show at least once dave is the only one that we've had on twice congratulations dave um there's actually nothing that you won uh because well i win from i win i beat i beat them so uh, yeah yeah good. bragging rights yeah you win the opportunity of being on the show yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right now all the awkwardness is is out of there all right let's jump into the topic of the night topic is the rendlesham forest ufo incident <clears throat> better make this good you shut your face all right Within the sleepy county of Suffolk in eastern England is the 5.8 square mile or 3,700 acre Rendlesham Forest. Roughly two miles wide and three miles long, Rendlesham Forest sits 80 miles northeast of London and only six miles west of the channel that separates England from mainland Europe. In 1942, during World War II, an airfield was built in the northern section of Rendlesham Forest for use by the Royal Air Force. The base became known as RAF Bentwaters. The Royal Air Force used the airfield until 1948. From 1951 to 1993, it was used by NATO forces and was leased by the United States Air Force and was actively used by the 81st Fighter Inceptor Wing. In 1943, also during World War II, the Royal Air Force built another airfield in the southern area of the Rendlesham Forest. This base became known as RAF Woodbridge. This, as well, was only used by the Royal Air Force until 1948, and from 1952 to 1993, 
The United States Air Force leased the base and actively housed the 81st Fighter Inceptor Wing as well as the 79th Fighter Squadron. In 1993, after the Cold War, the twin bases were handed back over to the United Kingdom's Ministry of Defense. RAF Bentwaters was closed and now houses the Bentwaters Cold War Museum in Bentwaters Park. On the other hand, RAF Woodbridge is still open and is the home of the 23rd Engineer Regiment of the British Army. So, that's a little bit of history into the Rendlesham Forest and RAF's Woodbridge and Bentwaters. To get into the story of what we're actually going to talk about tonight, in 1980, RAF's Woodbridge and Bentwaters were being used by the United States Air Force and were under the responsibility of Wing Commander Colonel Gordon E. Williams, Base Commander Colonel Ted Conrad, Deputy Base Commander Lieutenant Colonel Charles I. Halt, and Deputy Wing Commander Edward Drury. Christmas night, December 25th to the 26th of 1980 at 0200, Radar operators at RAF Watton, near Norfolk, England, noticed strange occurrences on their radar. There was not supposed to be any aircraft in the sky that night, so this alarmed the operators. The blips moved off-screen towards U.S.-operated RAF Woodbridge and were then picked up by operators at the U.S.-operated RAF Bentwaters. The phenomenon was also picked up by Heathrow Airport in London. The radar operators at Bentwater notified their superiors and a fighter jet was sent up to take a look at what it could be. When the fighter was roughly a quarter mile away from the object, it took off extremely fast and climbed 90,000 feet and disappeared off of radar screens. After the disappearance of the object, the fighter jet returned to the base. At around 0245, Airman First Class John Burroughs and Staff Sergeant Bud Steffens were patrolling the base and were arriving at the eastern gate at RAF Woodbridge when they noticed a set of strange lights slowly descending into the Rendlesham Forest, a rather short distance outside of the base. Now, Burroughs, the first guy I mentioned here, he's actually a co-author of a book that I used heavily for research in this episode. The book's called The, the Encounter in Rendlesham Forest, and I will be referring to that quite a bit tonight. The lights were flashing blue and red, and the red light was on top and the blue light was on the bottom from their point of view. Their first thought was that it was an airplane crash, possibly one of their military's own, but there were no scheduled flights that night, so they were expecting it to be a civilian aircraft. The lights then seemed to intensify and grow. The men went on to jump in a military vehicle and exit the base to determine what it was that was causing the strange lights. They drove as far as they could on the road before getting out and walking a few paces. A white light then joined the red and blue light, and the men became weary because the configuration of lights were not something they were familiar with when it came to military or civilian aircraft. So they jumped back into their vehicle before properly identifying the source of the light and hastily drove back to base to report it. The men said they did not want to report over the radio this could have been military-related, and due to protocol stating that if it could have been a sensitive situation, specific communication routes should be taken, and the sensitivity of the situation could be determined by higher authorities. 
landlines were considered more secure because radios were susceptible to radio scanners. They successfully contacted the security desk and spoke to Sergeant Crash McCabe, who then took the information and passed it on to the on-duty flight chief at RAF Woodbridge, a man by the name of Staff Sergeant Jim Penniston. Now, Jim Penniston is going to be another guy that's very active in the story. He is also one of the other co-authors, one of three of that Encounters in Rendlesham Forest book that I use heavily for research. Penniston was not briefed on the situation and was told he would be given the information by the team at the East Gate. This was the first strange thing surrounding these events of the night. The reason why this was strange is because this lends to belief that someone higher up knew something about the situation. If it honestly was thought to be a plane crash, Penniston would have been briefed so that he could bring the proper assets to the scene, but he was not briefed until he got to the gate. Staff Sergeant Penniston arrived at the East Gate accompanied by Airman Edward Cabinsack. There they were updated in person by the other two and shown the lights in the distance. Penniston looked at the lights and also felt concerned that it wasn't an aircraft as the light colors and patterns didn't match up with anything he was aware of. But then he asked a question. Did anyone hear a crash or an explosion sound? The answer was no from Burroughs, Steffens, and the others at the post at the East Gate. Penniston's reply to this was, quote, Well, that means it didn't crash. It landed. End quote. Penniston then went on to contact the overall flight chief of both RAF Bentwaters and Woodbridge, Master Sergeant J.D. Chandler. From there, Master Sergeant Chandler checked with RAF Bodsey, RAF Watton, and Heathrow Airport in London to see if they had any info on an aircraft over Rendlesham. The returned information was that they were all tracking a bogey, bogey being a term used by the military to refer to an identity unknown aircraft or object that has been verified by visual or radar means. This bogey disappeared off radar over Rendlesham Forest, more specifically, RAF Woodbridge. From there, Master Sergeant Chandler contacted 81st Police Squadron Shift Commander Lieutenant Fred Buren and told him, of what had been passed down to him by both the military personnel and civilian radar operators. Staff Sergeant Penniston was instructed by Master Sergeant Chandler via Lieutenant Buran to investigate the lights because of the strange radar issues from earlier that night in the vicinity. Penniston asked for backup, and Master Sergeant Chandler offered his own help in the matter and began traveling out to the scene. Rumor was that the reason why they were sent off base to investigate something not technically within their jurisdiction was because the bases in Rendlesham Forest were rumored to have a large nuclear arsenal hidden under concrete mounds in various locations spread across both bases. And of course, it could just simply be an unreported aircraft crash and someone could need help. From here, three out of the four men at the East Gate Staff Sergeant Penniston, Airman First Class Burroughs, and Airman Kometseg went to investigate while Staff Sergeant Steffens stayed at the gate. Here was another strange circumstance of the event. No medical personnel or fire brigades were sent to assist in what was being considered a possible civilian airplane crash. Now, why was that? At the location, 
They exited the vehicle. They waited for Master Sergeant Chandler. And when he arrived, the team began walking into the forest with extreme caution. But the closer they got to the lights, the more all four men's communication via their radios seemed to cut out and only worked at the trucks and within close distance to each other. To combat this, they created a radio relay of sorts. Master Sergeant Chandler stayed with the parked vehicles to relay any information from the men in the forest to security control. Kevin Sag was next to stop as radio contact with Master Sergeant Chandler was threatening to go out. This left only Airman First Class Burroughs and Staff Sergeant Penniston to be the only ones to get really close to the scene. The men said they felt like every hair on their body was standing up the entire time they were anywhere near the light. The area was filled with static and felt like they were wading through water as they got closer. When they were just on the fringe of the immediate area of the scene, an explosion of light occurred and the and both of the men dropped to the ground as a reaction to the silent explosion. When Penniston got up and looked over to his right, he noticed that there was a beam of light coming from overhead engulfing Burroughs, who was still on the ground. Soon after, the lights in front of them seemed to dim as Staff Sergeant Penniston got closer to the source. As he approached the craft, he could clearly see that there were no fire or smoke, the lights were coming from a large triangular-shaped craft that was floating just off of the ground or propped up by a tripod of sorts that they couldn't see, and emanating blue lights from the sides, a white light from the top, and was completely silent. His best estimate as to how big the craft was is roughly 10 feet on each side and 10 feet tall. As the lights dimmed down, he could see the object was made of a smooth and shiny black glassy material and the light that it was emitting was coming from the material itself instead of a specific lighting source, and the area around the craft seemed to have a static feeling everywhere around it. Staff Sergeant Penniston took out his notebook and the camera he had brought and began taking pictures and writing notes about measurements and other noticeable anomalies, such as the symbols that were clearly seen inside of the craft. Staff Sergeant Penniston drew sketches of these symbols, in his notebook, and if you want, you can clearly see them on page 7 of the book Encounter in Rendlesham Forest, or you can go to Penniston's own book, The Rendlesham Enigma, and it's actually right on the cover. You can look it up on Amazon. The best description he, he could come up with for a comparison for these symbols were ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, but even that wasn't even that close of a comparison. In his notebook, he also claimed that he had touched it and determined that it was warm, and that the skin of the craft was very smooth and glassy, but the symbols were rough like sandpaper. When he was touching the craft, the white light on top became very bright, bright to the point that it began to hurt his eyes, and when he removed his hand, the light dissipated. After a few minutes, the craft began to rise, and after another two or three minutes, the craft rose high enough to clear the tops of the trees and flew off with incredible speed the whole time remaining completely silent. Some sources say that after the craft flew off, the men saw another light source some distance away and determined that it was another craft. But the most reputable sources I know uh, actually said that this was the Orford Nest Lighthouse, uh, and that is including Penniston and Burroughs, who believed that what they were looking at, the second light source that night, was just a lighthouse that was about six miles away from their, their position in 
Randall Sham Forest, although there are a lot of different um, sources that will say that it was a second aircraft. The people that were actually there don't believe that. They think it was the, the lighthouse. <clears throat> now, this is where we get really weird. From the point of view of Airman First Class Burroughs, when he dropped to the ground and returned to his feet, the craft was already beginning to hover upwards near the top of the tree line. Whereas from Penniston's point of view, he was around the craft for a few minutes, writing notes and touching the skin of the craft. This is the first example of time manipulation documented in the events we will go over tonight. It is theorized that space and time may have been distorted around the craft, and this could have caused a difference in time between the men, as they are soon to find out. Security control also claimed that the men were gone for almost an hour. This was made even stranger by the discrepancies in both men's watches. Penniston's watch showed a difference of about 45 minutes between his watch and the time back at security control when he ended up showing back up. Now, really quick, before we move on, does anybody have any questions or anything like that? Uh, I'll let you keep going before I shatter this for you. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm actually reading along with you in the notes here. I'm uh, really enjoying it. Like This is a really in-depth dive of what exactly happened. I like it. Right on. Dave, you good, man? Yes, sir. All right, so before we, we move on, I want to read you guys an insert from this book. Uh, I went through this entire book and I was like, you know, I'm not going to read the whole book to you guys, but this right here really says what Penison was actually going through at this time. So here it is. This is on page eight of the book Encounter in Rendlesham Forest by Nick Pope, John Burroughs, and Jim Penison. And this is the words of Jim Penison. I entered the bubble field the area immediately around the craft first. John was over to my right about 10 feet and a couple feet back. The silence was then the most prominent part of it. The area or field seemed dead. The air, no sound, no rustling of air or wind, no distant sounds, no animals or nothing. A dead silence. A strong static on clothes, hair and skin being pulled toward the light. Then dissipated. I was alone, and from John's perspective, he has no memory. John is standing still and motionless. I yelled at him. Of course, no reaction. He does not move. He, of course, cannot hear me, and then I turn and focus on the craft and the matter of security for the bases. It has been always the case that John does not have a memory of this, but when we were being Debrief and writing statements in Colonel Halt's office less than 72 hours after the first night, John, in his statement, which was handwritten, has the drawing of the craft he saw with me. This has always made me wonder about John's memory. Why could he do this within 72 hours? And today, he has no memory. Definitely food for thought. So, as you hear there, Burroughs actually suffered memory loss from that spot. After he was writing something down about the incident, he lost his memory of that night. Until later, and we'll get into that later when he goes to see a therapist and uncovers uh, some stuff later on. And Pen uh, Penison actually goes and sees one as well. 
but we'll also see another instance of somebody writing something down and immediately forgetting a little bit later on tonight as we get deeper into the story. Does anybody have any questions about what I just read? I, I have a little bit more to go until this little section is done. You you mentioned uh, static, right? Electrostatic? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. If you'd like to know more about how this could possibly happen, check out our episode on time travel. The Simpsons one, although that was a fun episode. Uh, our regular episode on time travel, which we did in season two. I believe season two or season three. Check it out. Really good episode. We put out some really, really good information that day. And you'll kind of understand how this could possibly have happened. But it was theorized that the reason why this aircraft was given off such a distortion was because it might have been made of a very dense material and could possibly have created its own force of gravity, which in turn could distort time. Again, we go into how that's possible in the time travel episode. Check it out. Um, after the craft left and the men were left standing there with no answers as to what exactly just happened, they began looking for signs of what they saw. They noticed that in the hardened, frozen ground, there were impressions left at equal intervals apart from each other in the shape of a triangle and broken tree limbs in the area that the craft would have descended and ascended through. After 0400, civilian police officers became involved in the investigation due to many farmers in the area complaining that their livestock were acting very strange that night. And also at 0400, AFC, or Airman First Class, Chris Armold called the Suffolk police and made them aware of the incidents that took place in Rendlesham Forest that night. This is a common practice that occurs if the military was to conduct any investigations outside of the base property. There, in the Suffolk County official police record, was a very important log that was made on the same night and time as the investigation's conclusion. It read, and quote, We have had a call from law enforcement at Bentwaters in reference to a UFO reported last night. We found a place where a craft of some sort seems to have landed. And by 0500, all investigators were out of the forest. Same day in the morning, the law enforcement and security offices were writing what they call a blotter, which is Air Force Form 53. A blotter being the form for officially documenting the events of the shift that just concluded and also acting as a form of pass down for the oncoming shift. After the blotter was saved, both law enforcement and security blotters were removed and labeled as secret. This was confirmed by the deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Halt. He was unable to read the blotters, but was able to see that the head base commander, Colonel Ted Conrad, was the one who removed the official records and labeled them as such. Along with the blotters, the incident and a complaint report, Air Force Form 1569, was also removed from record. I just want to point out here, Lieutenant Colonel Halt is another big name. So you have Burroughs, Pennison, and Halt. Those are your three really big names. Uh, you're going to hear them quite a bit. I mean, there's some higher ranking people, but these are the guys that the story revolve around. I will finish my summary of the first night with this question. What do you guys think of the removal of the official documents? Personally, I think this lends evidence that this was expected. 
especially when you take into consideration that any info about the situation was not properly passed down to the person whose job it is to control emergency situations, that being Jim Penniston. If this was something that could have been considered a possible plane crash, there would have been floods of police, ambulance, fire trucks, all racing to the scene. And something that a lot of civilians don't know about, is very common in, in aviation military, reclamation teams would have been there. Reclamation teams, their jobs are to secure any top secret or valuable items from the aircraft that has crashed. So things like altimeters, right? Aren't those made out of radios like, and radios yeah. and shit like that, right? Yep. Uh, there's a lot of stuff. IFF systems, beacons. There's a lot of stuff that's valuable in aircraft, civilian and military, mm-hmm. that these reclamation teams, whether military or civilian, will go in and get before investigators can arrive. And it's actually written into the laws that they're able to go in there and reclaim the stuff that is of value or top secret. Nobody can do anything about it. We have to be able to get this stuff, and then they can have the scene. So that's all I got. What do you guys think of the first night of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident? We'll start with the guest first. What do you think, man? This one I've heard of before, so... Uh, I I remember. I I'm sure you're gonna get into some some of the stuff that I remember. Uh, that's really big about this. But I remember them talking about the uh, the symbols on the craft. Yep. And the, the actually the bubble that you mentioned too was mm-hmm. another thing. And it this this whole thing is it's crazy because there's multiple people that witnessed it and saw different things and saw the Hundreds. same thing. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it was the whole there was a whole area of, of people. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's pretty wild. And it's not like something that happened in like the 50s. You know, it's 1980. So it's not mm-hmm. too far off. So a ton. I mean, it's not. It's not more credible, you know, but like when you're going back down the, you know, the path to 1947 and people are talking about balloons and pictures of tinfoil compared to something like this you know it's this is one of the this is one of the weirder ones because of the stuff that happens after especially some of the the writings and uh accounts from some of these guys for those of you that may not have caught caught on to that he was talking about roswell yes (laughs) all right jake you're next because i want to hear jeff blow this whole thing up you know at first people having completely different stories makes me think that this is all bs um because they're just like oh they can't keep their story straight right they're just you know making it up as they go um but certainly there's some areas where it's questionable you know i agree that obviously this wasn't labeled as an aircraft crash because yeah i mean i've seen right in front of my face an aircraft crash i mean it wasn't too terrible but it was like landing gear failed to deploy and they got the bird down and it fell over, you know, and mm-hmm. pilot got out just fine, stepped out of the, the F-18 and started walking. And yeah, they still brought freaking everybody and their mother was there, you know, five fire mm-hmm. trucks, ambulance, police rolled in, you know, all that sort of stuff. All the base security, everybody was there. They sent those massive fire trucks, the ones that have like 12, you know, or 20,000 gallons of water inside of them, like just rolling <laughs> deep. Yeah. Right. And it's just like, and yeah, everyone showed up. Um, 
but what that could also make me think is that someone higher than these guys knew that there was a testing of a newer type of aircraft and maybe it was along the lines of like oh my gosh there's a crash over here and then someone higher up was like cancel that call it's not a crash it's we know what's going on you know Mm -hmm. and then they just remove all the all the reported documents all that sort of stuff because you got to think you know the aircraft we're we're pumping out right now like the f-35 it's relatively new but it's been in production for i think 15 years I don't know. You got to make sure that all these, you know, systems work on it. If I go, you know, more than a hundred knots and I turn left, you know, is the airframe going to crack in half You know, all these different things, but that would also lead into, you know, it's been such a long time. Why wouldn't this aircraft, if it was in development, be released now? You know, so I don't know. There's a lot of questions that I have bouncing around in my mind. And then also, I don't know if you're going to cover it but i found something really interesting about john burroughs uh that's fairly recent medical wise about his his uh incident so if you don't cover it i'll i'll sling it in at the end but uh i I thought it's really interesting because it leaves more credibility into this whole thing considering that you know there was approval and a claim that he submitted by the va and that's oh was there really because I, I know what you're talking about, yeah. and I, I don't actually get into it. So we can talk about it briefly here. But you're talking about his cancers, right? Yeah. No, he no he had a, a heart failure. Um, well, that yeah, 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 yep. So I, I touch base on this slightly. I don't mention what his actual medical issue is, mm-hmm. but I do talk about his relation to the VA and the problems that he goes through getting his medical records. I'm, I'm, I read it right off an article right now, and I will definitely cite it in our uh, sources, but they, uh, or at least I had read it and I have it pulled up, but they agreed that during this incident, he was exposed to a huge amount of radiation mm-hmm. and that, and they approved his claim. And it says at the end of this article, the fact that a government agency like the VA approved a claim saying that when I was around the ufo or uap i was exposed to radiation is unprecedented and i'm like dang so yeah there's there's a whole bunch of you know like questions i got bouncing around in my mind and for right now it's just like well i don't know like this is from 2015 so it's like it's it's nice to be in a uh in an episode where it's just like like i want so badly to just be like crap you know this is fake (laughs) But this has actually got me scratching my head because I'm like, geez, I don't know. Well, it gets crazier. All right, Jeff. What do you got? I love <laughs> so Jeff. you want the whole breakdown right now? Or do you want me to wait? Because I know what this. Do you want to give us the whole breakdown right now? Or do you want to ruin wanna, the episode? Do you want to ruin <laughs> the episode? Say, this is only one episode long. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to ask you. Because like, I'm pretty sure I know what this craft is. Uh, and yeah, so. I'm pretty sure I think I know what you're talking about. You probably because you've talked about it before. We have talked about it before. Why don't you Why don't you save that for the end of the episode? <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'll just Please. say this. I think that I think that the event happened. I think that what the people saw, they saw, and that's all I'll give you for now. I think that I don't think they were bullshitting. I think it's a real event. It's just not what you may think. I couldn't agree more. It's a weather balloon. <laughs> it's fucking tinfoil it's tinfoil <laughs> it's corrugated steel sheets 
All right. Well, the the good news is is that that was the big read off. That was the long one. So all the rest of them are are shorter. Uh, I have some other ones that are a little lengthy, but nothing like that one. So we'll uh we'll be able to chat more often after Thank after that. God. Right? No, I'm just nice. kidding. <laughs> all right, you guys ready to move on? Ready. All right, let's move on to day two. Shortly after the events of that night, Staff Sergeant Pennison and AFC Burroughs were interviewed by Deputy Squadron Commander Major Edward Drury and the on-duty shift commander, Captain Mike Verano. That morning, Major Drury, Captain Verano, Staff Sergeant Pennison, Airman First Class Burroughs, as well as Master Sergeant Ray Gullias, went out to the scene of the quote-unquote UFO landing. There they found three impressions on the ground, forming a perfect triangle. Each impression was two inches deep and exactly 9.8 feet away from the others. Pennison noted the burn marks on the trees surrounding where the craft had landed in the forest. AFC Burroughs and Staff Sergeant Pennison briefed the other three men on what exactly happened the night before. After the briefing and any other questions that the higher-ups had, Burroughs and Pennison were sent away. After Drury, Verano, and Guyas were done, they went on to brief Major Zickler. Zickler then instructed the men to meet with a British police officer that was heading that way to complete their side of the investigation in the daylight. Just before the men were set to return to the scene to meet with the British police officer, Penniston had returned with plaster of Paris and water and took casts of the impressions on the ground left by the craft. The casts were all roughly two inches deep as well as seven inches in diameter, and these casts are still available today to be seen and have been in many documentaries, TV shows, magazines, and books. Penniston was very concerned that this whole event was going to be swept under the rug, and he wanted his own proof as to what he saw. Between the notebooks, photos, and plaster cast, Staff Sergeant Pennison now had a solid collection of evidence proving his experience that night. On his way out of the forest, he ran right into Drury, Verano, and Guyas as they were returning with the British police officer. When asked by Drury what he was doing there, Pennison claimed that he just wanted to come back to see if he could put the pieces back together. Drury responded with, Leave the rest to us. We will take care of it from here. Pennison made no comment about the cast he made. While on the scene, Gullius took an entire roll of photos, but later that day he was told that every photo he took was foggy and the picture were useless. The men stayed out there for almost an hour with a British officer who claimed that the impressions were clearly made by wildlife. Now you gotta think, remember this. If Pennison was there, he made the cast and he pulled them out. So when you put plaster of Paris into the ground and you let it sit there, it pulls up a whole bunch of dirt with it too. And that's going to leave the impressions not looking perfect. That's going to look like exactly what this officer said. It's going to look like animals were digging in the ground. After they all returned and the news came back to Guyas about his photos, he went back out there to take more pictures without permission. These pictures were blurry, but could tell what the subjects of the photos were and was very curious as to why these photos were like this. According to one of my sources, 
Now, multiple sources has this aircraft, but I only one of my sources talked about this, and I just want to spend some time on this because I'm I'm going to go ahead and try to debunk this little next section altogether because this is a common piece of information that's included in a lot of other reports. The same morning, United States Air Force A-10 Warhog flew over the area and picked up a residual heat signature left over from the UFO. Now, I want to talk about this because I've seen this before uh, with this particular story, and I want to punch holes in this theory. I did some research here because I know a little bit about Warhogs. I didn't know too much about them, but I had a feeling that something was wrong here. An A-10 is a close combat war machine, close meaning in respect to how close you can get with an aircraft. The only infrared that was on this aircraft was on the homing surface-to-air missiles that it could be outfitted with. These missiles are known as AGM-65 Mavericks. Mavericks use an infrared camera system to track their targets and are not used for surveillance purposes. The point I'm trying to make here is that if a plane did a flyover for purposes of taking infrared images, it would not have been an A-10, as the capabilities and the mission of that particular aircraft does not match up with the need. So to me, this is either fake info, or there was never a flyover, and this was added for flair, or they got the aircraft wrong, but why would so many sources claim it was an A-10? Or this info was purposely inputted into the story from unknown sources to cover what aircraft was actually used to take these photos. So I'm at a break here. What we got? Did the A-10 at least go burnt? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Sure. You know, you know. You know, you know, right? Right. Anything, gents? I like watching those videos of those planes wrecking shit. Right. Me too. I'm guessing that's it, right? You ready to move on? Yep. Mm-hmm. Nothing happened the rest of the 26th or the most of the 27th. But just before midnight, Airman First Class Gregory Batram, Lori Bone, Sergeant John Tremontosi, and a few other security officers saw bright lights in the sky outside the east gate of RAF Woodbridge that seemed to have landed in the Randlesham Forest. The red glow coming from the forest prompted AFC Batram to call in the incident to security control. He requested and was granted permission to investigate the red light by those running the desk. He also requested for security control to contact the fire department in case the red light was a forest fire. After receiving permission, Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin and Master Sergeant Bobby Ball drove down the road outside of the gate parked their car as close as they could, and began to walk the rest of the way. As they got closer, they claimed to also be able to feel static electricity in the air. They also claimed to have seen orange, red, white, and blue lights coming from a hazy location up ahead. The closer they got to the source, they claimed to be overcome with fear. The investigators began retreating back to their vehicle, where they came across a second team that was also dispatched to investigate the lights. This other group consisted of Lieutenant Bruce England and Sergeant Adrian Bastinza. After a quick pass down, it was determined that they were indeed dealing with another event, just like the one from two nights ago. 
This time, they went straight to higher authorities. Lieutenant England drove down to the Holiday and Rewards Banquet that Base Commander Colonel Ted Conrad was hosting at Woody's Bar. When Lieutenant England was finally able to talk to Colonel Conrad and Deputy Base Commander Lieutenant Colonel Halt, there's that name again, he simply said, It's back. Colonel Conrad did not believe there was an actual UFO involved and was very busy hosting the party, so he sent Deputy Base Commander Lieutenant Colonel Halt to deal with the matter. The first thing that Lieutenant Colonel Halt ordered for the area was for it to be secured. He also requested portable floodlights to be set up at the scene, and Lieutenant Colonel Halt later admitted that his initial intent was to prove the whole UFO theory to be false. He immediately built a security team consisting of Lieutenant Bruce Englund, Staff Sergeant Monroe Nevels, and Master Sergeant Bobby Ball, as well as a handful of investigative equipment, including a Geiger counter, a camera, flashlights, batteries, radios, recorder tapes, a starscope, which is a night vision device, and a tape recorder that Lieutenant Colonel Halt kept on recording during conversations and on his person at all times. Now, side note about these tapes from the recorder. There are 18 minutes of recording, but in 1999, Lieutenant Colonel Halt was being interviewed by author Georgina Bruni. And he mentioned that he actually recorded several hours of conversation, but it was confiscated and never seen again. When she asked if he could elaborate on what was said on the content that was never heard, Halt refused to say anything. Those of you listening to the beginning of this episode, our introduction today was actually the last minute to two minutes of recording from that tape. It's 18 minutes long. You guys can find that tape. Uh, I might actually post it on a, a Facebook post. I don't know. Because I actually have just the audio from that tape, the whole 18 minutes of it. But what you heard at the beginning of the episode is the end of that tape. So the team entered the forest and Lieutenant England led with a flashlight and Staff Sergeant Nevels, who was a member of the base disaster preparedness team, operated the Geiger counter and camera. During the first part of their investigation, the tape recorder recorded their conversations. And during the entire time of the investigation, the portable floodlights were inoperative. Many believe that this was caused by the static field that seemed to surround the craft, but Halt believed it was a mechanical or low-fuel problem. This is a very common occurrence in UFO encounter stories. Electronics seems to go bad all the time. They even went as far as to have the floodlights replaced and checked for proper fuel levels. The new lights also did not work, and when the old ones were brought back to the maintainers, they were able to start them without a problem. The first place the team went to was the location of the landing previously investigated two nights ago by Staff Sergeant Penniston, Airman First Class Burroughs, and Airman Commonsegg. As they were approaching the site, a radio interference anomaly began to affect their communications with the base. Three different frequencies were attempted to regain comms, but all failed. Their first observation at the site was the impressions on the ground. They confirmed all info earlier reported by Staff Sergeant Penniston. Additionally, the Geiger counter found traces of radiation up to 0.1 milliretchen present at all the impressions as well as on the trees facing the area of the impression 
but not on the very same trees facing away from the impressions. Holt also noticed abrasions on the trees, all pointing towards the area where the impressions were on the soil. The abrasions had a healthy amount of sap already accumulated, and they were hardened farther than they should have been for the time allotted. The most radiation was measured at the center of the impression, where the craft center would have been. Soil, sap, and tree bark samples were taken. The men then went on to use the star scope to get a better view in the darkness. When they looked at the center of the indentations, they were shocked to see there was an energy source being radiated out from the exact location even two days after the first event. There were also other smaller spots that you can hear Halt telling the others to not walk there in the recording. Now, I want to go ahead and put a little uh, asterisk right here or something. Let's, let's, let's keep this in the back of our head. There was radiation taken at all three points where the, where the craft was touching down and then dead center in the middle. But then they also made a note that there were radiation points all around the craft. Now, one thing I failed to put in my notes here that wasn't in this book, it was in a different book, but it actually looked like these radiation points could have been a stride of something, like something walked around and made like a a path or a walkway. And these other little radiation points could have been footfall. Just want to put that there. We'll come right back to it uh, later on in the show. Things began to get a little stranger when Lieutenant Colonel Holt and his team began hearing the local barnyard animals beginning to act very noisy and rowdy. This is hard to believe because the nearest farm was Green Farm, and that was out of earshot. Another strangeness that was later mentioned by Holt in an interview was that there were no dogs barking. Farms normally have dogs, and if the animals on the farm are alarmed, then the dogs would normally be barking. Now, there is another explanation here. The muntjac deer is found in the Rendlesham Forest and is nocturnal. Their nickname is the Barking Deer for the sounds that they make. This could have been a misinterpretation from the crew and really could have just been one or a few of these local deer that they heard and interpreted as farm life. But then things get even weirder. Staff Sergeant Nevels was the first to see the lights in the distance through the forest, followed by Lieutenant England then by a very excited Lieutenant Colonel Holt, who later described seeing red and yellow lights and formed a shape like an eye's iris looking right at them. Now, this was a really cool thing to listen to in that 18 and so odd seconds of recording from their conversation that night. This part was really cool. So if anybody does take the time to listen to all 18 minutes of that, this is a lot. Keep your ears open for this part. It's really, really cool. The team then noticed one large light moving towards them while weaving back and forward and up and down as if it were dodging the tree trunks with at least five other smaller ones in the distance. As it approached the team, all of the men described what looked like molten metal being dripped off the craft the light was emanating from. On its approach to the team, the craft adjusted its projected path and flew into a farmer's field adjacent to the forest. The men followed it into the field, where after a few minutes, it exploded, creating several smaller crafts, which left the area very quickly, still dripping the material noticed in the forest. 
Lieutenant Colonel Holt could not believe what he and his team just witnessed. The four men began looking for evidence of the molten material that they witnessed coming off of the crafts, but found nothing during their efforts. Then, just as quickly as it left, the one larger craft was returned very quickly and stopped and hovered above the team in the field, all while others zoomed around different spots along the landscape. Now, you'll remember this part. The introduction that you heard is this part in the story. Suddenly, there was a thin beam of light illuminating a spot about 10 feet in front of them. The men did not know whether it was attempting to signal them, threaten them, or hurt them, but as quickly as it approached and shined the light on them, it turned its lights off and flew off very quickly, heading directly over the airbase, and continued to shine and turn off its beam of light in various locations over the two bases. One of the places the craft illuminated was the bunker in which the nuclear inventory was thought to be stored. Lieutenant Colonel Halt's tape recorder recorded everything the team discussed that night, but stopped recording at this point. It is unclear as to the reason the recorder stopped, but this is when it ended, and the time was estimated to be 0400, or 4 a.m. for you non-military folk. This recording is still able to be found today. Staff Sergeant Nevels did take photographs of the craft and lights, but they were later confiscated. We get into that a little bit later. But he personally described three lights flying over RAF Bentwaters Woodbridge and that they were able to travel between the bases in only a second or two. The rest of the night was not audibly recorded, but that was not the end of the events. The entire team was confused as to what to do. None of them were ever trained nor thought they would ever have to deal with a situation involving UFOs. The team left the field and headed back to the area where the craft had landed two nights prior. As they were heading back, they came upon AFC Burroughs, the airman who witnessed the events a couple of nights ago, and Sergeant Bastinza. And as they were beginning to talk about the encounter in the field, a blue light lit up over the field the research team was just in. After getting permission from Lieutenant Colonel Holt, Airman First Class Burroughs and Sergeant Bastinza entered the field to investigate the new blue light. Burroughs led Bastinza into the field by a few feet. An explosion of bright light occurred, and Bastinza dropped to the ground and Burroughs stood a few feet to his left and was engulfed in the light. As Burroughs was surrounded by the blue light, Bastinza walked as Burroughs disappeared and reappeared after a few minutes. When Bastinza asked Burroughs where he went, Burroughs had no idea what he was talking about. From Burroughs' point of view, he never broke stride and simply kept walking towards the depth of the light. From Bastinza's point of view, Burroughs vanished in stride as he was engulfed in the light. Other things were visible, but not him, and simply reappeared still walking in the exact same spot he disappeared from a few minutes later. After that, the men didn't feel safe in the field anymore, so they met back with the group in the forest. Lieutenant Colonel Halt would say in a press conference for extraordinary events for the National Press Club in 2007 that, quote, I have no idea what we saw, but do know whatever we saw was under intelligent control. And in 2010, he ended a sworn affidavit notarized by Catherine C. Shaw of Virginia with, quote, I believe the objects I saw at close quarters were extraterrestrial in origin, 
and that the security services of both the United States and the United Kingdom have attempted, both then and now, to subvert the significance of what occurred at Randlesham Forest and RAF Bridgewaters by the use of well-practiced methods of disinformation. This was the end of the events of that night. Over a hundred people witnessed firsthand some sort of strange anomaly between December 25th and 28th of 1980 in and around Randlesham Forest and RAF Bentwaters and Woodbridge. Thousands more were talking about it as those who had left the area for holidays began returning. Soon after, Lieutenant Colonel Halt was instructed to gather everyone involved to compile very descriptive statements. The photos from Staff Sergeant Burroughs and Sergeant Neville's cameras were confiscated and developed on base. When the photos were developed, they were completely white, with no definition at all. Could this have been a cover-up? Well, there is actually a good explanation as to what may have actually happened to these photos. Due to the radiation that was measured at the site, the film may have been exposed by radiation before they were even used, causing all black negative images on the original photo rolls once developed in the Red Room. The black negatives would have been all white post-development. So that's all I have from the second night. What do you guys got in response? Hmm, so... Uh, it's interesting to me that all of the footage and pictures and stuff gets confiscated. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but it's interesting. Also, the fact that they weren't able to find any of the shit dripping off of whatever they were seeing, right? Then you mentioned that, that mm-hmm. they were looking for whatever metallic shit or whatever was dripping off and they couldn't find it. It's also interesting to me. Honestly, it just kind of supports uh, what my theory is. Does it? Yeah, it does. I actually thought that when it exploded, because I know what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. but when it exploded and broke off into multiple different crafts, I thought that kind of punched holes in your theory there. Um, I was thinking that at first, and then you even mentioned that the dude was saying that uh, intelligence agencies or whoever were using disinformation to... Right, yep. It could have been planted information. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, look at you. This is why you have to have a conspiracy theorist. All this paid opposition. (laughs) Fucking pogs. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think, Dave? The second night's pretty wild. Yes. That one, that one really, it just gets weirder and weirder, you know? They, um, I don't know. (laughs) These these guys definitely, I, I listened to the recording. And yeah. that was just really weird. Some of the stuff that they're saying, but I mean, it's, it's, they're, they sound legitimate, you know, oh, everything. It's def- it definitely sounds legit, man. It's a pretty yeah. spooky recording. I think the, the most, the, the weirdest thing about it is, is the stuff going missing. I think that's, and then you had mentioned earlier too, the, it was having trouble finding, uh, who was it? Who was the, one of the, one of the guys that had some complications more recently. And you said that he was having problems finding oh, his medical records and stuff. John so like Burroughs, that's, yeah. 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 Like that also is interesting in itself because you're like, well, if the records for this are gone, like paper wise, 
and he's having trouble. Those are, you know, kind of connect the string between two, two tacks right there. Yeah. So what do you think, Jake? Well, so I know people are going to think drugs, right? But unfortunately, I don't think there's ever been a recorded incident where multiple people had the same hallucination. The point of hallucinations is it's your subconscious projecting what you're seeing. So your hallucination would be completely different from someone else's. You're not going to take Unless drugs. Unless it's DMT. Uh, even still, I mean, it would be, in a lot of parts, your hallucination. Even if there was parts that were similar, like an implanted idea that you're focusing on or something like that. So mm-hmm. it'd be wildly different. I was not impressed with the idea that they couldn't get the uh, the boom light to work because, I mean, I could name a hundred people off the top of my head that I've seen not be able to figure out a boom light because they didn't know to mess with the circuit breaker. You know, oh, it's got fuel in it. I don't know why it's not turning on. Um, that was <laughs> you know? also something because just I don't mean to, to stop your flow, man. Yeah. But. One thing that people don't understand, we you gotta clear it, that throat, <laughs> dude. I, it, I, I'm, I'm sick, man. It's just gonna have, have to deal with it. So, <clears throat> one thing that a lot of people don't know, right? We call anything that we could use on the flight line, which obviously this is an Air Force base, right? Mm-hmm. So, in the Navy, we call it support equipment. Yeah, and in order to work any piece of equipment, you have to get qualified. Yep. You have to understand how to read the pre-op card, how to properly use it, and you have to show that you can use it under supervision and get signatures on what we call a PQS, and you have to learn how to use it. Now, if they're just checking it out to police officers, now I would assume police officers, you know, security teams for the Air Force or military police, I think that's Army, you would think that they would know how to use boom lights and they use the word boom light in the book i use floodlight because you know yeah. civilians will know what a floodlight is but if they're not familiar with it especially like you know nothing against lieutenant colonel holt but he's a higher up he's yeah. an officer and if he's trying to turn it on without properly being qualified on it and knowing what to push i mean let's think of like a power cart right a, yeah. a mobile power unit you have to flip a switch wait a couple seconds flip another switch wait a couple seconds and then you can turn it on not to mention that when it's when it's stagnant and no one's messing with it they request that you pull the circuit breaker out the big red button so right. that it doesn't kill the battery for the next right. time you use it but yeah, yeah i mean i've been qualified on both i call it a boom light because it's literally on a telescoping telescopic boom that goes like 20 feet in the air and if that's what i'm thinking that they're using because i know the technology in those hasn't changed in like a thousand years but um it's just like it's a big giant generator with a massive fuel tank you turn it on and you you know press a button and it raises up the boom and this massive floodlights on top and it just illuminates you know this uh, a tremendous area right i mean we use them on yeah, we used to use them on the MH-53s, which are just under 100 feet long, and it would illuminate the entire side of the aircraft. So, I mean, it's a huge, massive light, but 
you know, I couldn't remember on that one if it was a, a switch or a button. But yeah, if if it's got total fuel in it and they take it back to the maintainers, like, yeah, it works. I don't know why you can't can't figure it out, but you're not seeing that you need to flip the circuit breaker or something like that. So anyway, that didn't impress me only because, you know, if it is a common occurrence that electronics are are all buggy, you know, around these sorts of events, then you'd have to assume that the recording devices would also be buggy and the, right. uh, you know, whatever they're using, you know, the star scope or whatever they're using for night vision, that would also be buggy, not just right. the camera and the boom light. So for right. me, that was a hole in it and I wasn't too impressed by it. Although I agree with Jeff, you know, everything being confiscated for one and then all the pictures, quote unquote, coming out pure white and blank, you know, I would lead more into believing that it maybe maybe they're telling the truth and there was, you know, some sort of aircraft that they just weren't they didn't have a need to know for. And it does produce a significant significant amount of radiation and it was blanking out the photos. Or maybe they just hand them back a blank roll they've exposed to a whole bunch of light and they're like, oh, I don't know. Oh, weird, <laughs> you know, and it's right. just like so there's uh, I'm excited to to get into the rest of this because I did do some research on it um, just to know where the area was, what the base was being used for, kind of who was involved and all this sort of stuff. But I didn't really just dive straight into it because I wanted to be able to have this sort of reaction to it and be able to like, be like, I'm following the story. I understand what's going on. But, you know, to have these sorts of questions and stuff, because honestly, I have my own like things that are like don't make a lot of sense to me but i don't have an opinion on like like jeff where i'm gonna destroy this thing you know <laughs> like i did with you know some other episodes we've done so yeah well that's why we have uh different strokes on this team you know that's right you know we have uh me and you who could talk about something like a boom light you know i just want to go back to that <laughs> for a second because you know you you think about the reason why this was included in a lot of different accounts of the events on Randall Sham. The reason why this is included is because it it fits the story. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Electronics go bad. Oh, boom lights weren't working. Throw it in there. That's that's a big thing. Yeah. But what people don't really realize is that when you go up to a boom light and you see the little power switch that says power on, you know, that's the first thing that people are going to go to and flip it. What yeah. they don't know is that they have to push the kill switch back in and yeah. then they have to prime it and all this other stuff that they have to do run it up for five minutes before they turn the light on (laughs) right you know what i'm saying and it's like you know they don't understand that and another thing uh that i want to talk about real quick is the need to know thing Uh uh-huh just clearing this up for anybody out there a top secret clearance doesn't give you access to everything sure don't it sure don't what you need is a top secret clearance and a need to know Mm -hmm. so if you have a top secret clearance, you only have a top secret clearance in the stuff that you need to know about due to your job. I can't just go walking into Area 51 if I have a top secret clearance. Nope. I would have to have a need to know. That's an official term. You can look it up. A need to know what's going on on that base in, in order to go mm-hmm. or whatever. You know, If they're developing a new app to find singles in your area, if I don't have a need to know, then I'm not going to get first dibs on the app. You know what I'm saying? Just clearing that up for anybody that isn't familiar with the way military works. 
So, anything else to add before I keep going? I want to go to Area 51. Not for any sort of, you know, find out the alien investigative stuff, but I've seen a picture of their patches and their coins that they have at I their was just exchange. Say. And, dude, yeah. I want to show up at the gate just to try to convince the guard to trade a patch and a coin with me. <laughs> like, it would be dude, my prized possession. I would love to pa- a patch from, from Area 51. It would be fucking great. I have to find somebody. So, anybody have anything else? I just want to know how Pendison that quick got plaster of Paris. Like, did he run to a Blix? Like, did he, <laughs> that, you know? That is like, another one that yeah. just didn't make sense, but the casts exist. Yeah. That is a thing. Yeah. The cast, the cast do exist. Um, I mean, did he just, I, I don't know because you're right. Plaster Pulled of Paris. Out of his just, pocket. Yeah. He just, <laughs> he just had a, he had the ingredients or he's like, he just had a traumatic event. He gets in his car and he just, bolts to an art store or something well, and then he's a he's bigfoot like... researcher so he already has a <laughs> <laughs> i'm looking for bigfoot in england we had, had yep. to plug it somewhere <laughs> <laughs> got it we did it good job jake Thanks. you're learning you're learning that's yeah that's a good point i hadn't thought about that that is something to a very obscure thing to just be like well th- good thing i had this in my yeah. briefcase <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know? not just that one thing i was trying to think of was what's the cure time on plaster of paris mm. you know i mean Good i don't question. know i'm mm. a huge bigfoot nut but i've never made a cast well probably pretty quick if it was really cold right it was uh december so yeah probably actually i think it's reverse i think Is really it? cold yeah i think really cold actually because i know that people will add salt to the mixture to get it to harden in rain or snow so mm. i mean i don't know that, that's a good question anybody listening let us know how long does it take for plaster of Paris? Doesn't salt drop the temperature? Uh, I think salt absorbs the moisture. Quicker. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Mm, yeah. Well, when it's cold out, the moisture doesn't evaporate as quick. Right. So you force some salt in there to force remove the moisture. I, I, I don't know the exact science about it. I just know that people add salt to plaster of Paris when they're taking Bigfoot casts. Um, when it's raining or or like super cold out so but jeff you had things now talk yes so <laughs> real quick according to duck duck go plaster of paris takes about 30 to 45 minutes because he doesn't use google i'm a real conspiracy theorist bro i guess i'm gonna start using duck duck go is it because it doesn't filter results like google does? uh I'm sure it does. I mean, let's be real, right? DARPA's in control of the fucking internet, but he's not as bad, at least. <laughs> Love let's it. Just say that. Love it. You know. Um, but now I was just gonna crack a joke about the Area 51 thing. I feel like we all should have went to the raid and sold water, and we would not be talking to each other because we'd be living on a beach in Fiji right now. <laughs> would you have sold Fiji water? I would have sold Fiji water and I would have sold it for like $12 a bottle because you know if you're stupid enough to try to raid Area 51, you're also too stupid to bring water to the desert. We would have been rich. Yeah, there was like 18 people that showed up or like 30 people and they were just like dancing and having a party and drinking Coors Light and shit out front. And it wasn't, it didn't turn out, to, it turned out to be a bunch of people that like nothing happened. I heard a lot of people actually went to that area like to the, like the towns that are around it, yeah. but not a lot of people actually showed up at the gate. I heard that the towns well, were 
blown out. I think in order to show up to the gate, you have to go through like a like several miles of like signs saying that they'll like shoot you and kill you and stuff. Yeah. Like it's like it's like a big deal. You can, I I don't know if you can just roll up to the gate itself. I've driven out there by myself. I was going to uh, meet uh, a girlfriend out out there in mm-hmm. Las Vegas, and their flight was late. So I was like, oh well. I'm just I'm, I'm out Better here. Better go get arrested. Yeah, so let's, <laughs> let's, let's let's go over here. So I went as far as I could go, and I I started seeing signs, and that's when I was like, all right, that's close enough for me. I'm good. You know, I'm in the area. <laughs> you know what? I have a military ID, and I'm pretty dumb. Let's go. <laughs> right. The gate. I have a patch and a coin. I just want to trade. Is they're like putting guns in my face and dragging me out of the car? <laughs> get the fuck out of here! <laughs> He's got a coin. <laughs> My my favorite part about that whole area was seeing all the little towns that are in Fallout New Vegas, the actual towns. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah nice. like Prim and Good Springs and all those like little little places, the actual towns out there outside that's of Las awesome. Vegas. Oh, that's cool. That's really neat. Good stuff. So this is about <laughs> halfway through my presentation. Dang. This is where we're gonna cut off episode one of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. Dave is going to go ahead and bounce out out of here, but we'll get his opinion on what happens after the fact. And uh, we'll make sure to forward that to you guys whenever we can get back in touch with Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, Dave, thanks for stopping in, man. It's always a pleasure to have you, you know, spread it around to the boys over there at Hush Hush and let them know that they're always welcome here on Infinite Rabbit Hole. All right, dude. Oh, I'm going to spread it on thick. Good, don't good, don't good. you worry. <laughs> Before you go, man, go ahead and uh, let the listeners, let the travelers, sorry, of the Infinite Rabbit Hole know exactly where uh, they can listen to you and follow you and all that good stuff, man. Give it to us. Well, you can listen to us every other Monday where we do debriefings. And we also have other segments like the Cryptid Chronicles where we talk cryptids jeremy was on our first cryptid chronicles episode with the jersey. it wasn't as erotic as what we've released on our patreon but we <laughs> <laughs> have to read it. i have to do it <laughs> we also have the declassified discussions which has a bunch of uh guest spots with different uh subjects on there as well you can listen to us pretty much everywhere you listen to podcasts you can find all of it at hushhushsociety.com we have blogs and mike drops a bunch of news we have a ton of merchandise the new store is going to be up very shortly for hush hush apparel we're also on the metaverse we're on facebook facebook we're on uh <laughs> facebook <a> twitter <laughs> yeah yeah the, the new the new metaverse app is facebook <laughs> <laughs> uh twitter instagram and uh we do have a patreon which is live we have the two tiers we have the three dollar hustronaut tier and the five dollar hushling tier which gets you all the goodies the dirty goodies nice. and yeah that's patreon.com slash hush hush society and on, other than that come join us january 10th for our 40th debriefing and season four finale with the uh, agenda 21 and we're going to go head down to New Haven and hit up the Skull and Bones. Mike and Frankie actually want to drive down to New Haven and do that. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know if I want to go to New Haven for anything, man. No. Just for pizza, man. That's about it. Oh, yeah, dude. That's where pizza was born, wasn't it? Pretty much. <laughs> well, it's always a pleasure, man. 
I really do appreciate, you know, working with you guys. And uh, let's get together again, dude. Yeah, it'd be awesome to get all of us in one session. That would be one cluster. Oh, we should do right. it. We should do it. I don't know. Let's let's talk about something general, you know, something where we don't fuck it. We'll talk about Mothman erotica. <laughs> the round table of bullshit. Hey, if you want to go crazy, we can get Jeff's crew in there too. And we have three podcasts just bullshitting to each other. What, like nine people? <laughs> just stream a Discord with 35 people in it. <laughs> well, here you go. Not editing it. Go. <laughs> Everybody say hi at once. Yeah, right. Dave, it was good meeting you. Yeah, uh, you guys as well. Thank need you. To, uh, need to be on with your third. Yeah, I, let's let's get let's get it all together because I, I really like to have the other the other two mm-hmm. sitting next to me because they are ridiculous. I guess you could say they're, they're pretty <laughs> pretty funny bunch. They are uh, from partly the same loin, so. They are definitely a funny bunch. <laughs> All righty. Next week, we will dive into the second part of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. Until next time, see ya. See ya. Thank you.